Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. I decided to take a little time out on my Labor Day to record a podcast debunking Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. You know, I've been getting a lot of emails about Yang, you know, especially since he did the Joe Rogan podcast about six months ago. And he said a lot of things that certain people find appealing. So I've been asked to comment on him and I've seen other, uh, you know, notes about Andy Yang. And I wanted to talk about him because, number one, he is rising in the polls. You know, he's now in sixth place among the Democratic candidates. Uh, He's polling at about 3%. And that puts him ahead of, you know, established politicians like, you know, Cory Booker or Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar. So he's he's gaining in popularity. And I think the trend is going to continue. You know, the next Democratic debate is coming up in, what, about a week and a half or so. And they're no longer going to have two debates. They've narrowed it down to just 10 candidates. And Andy Yang is one of those 10. And I think as, uh, you know, there are fewer candidates in the race, I think Yang is going to get more and more attention from the media. And I think he's going to rise in the polls. You know, to me, he is like the Bernie Sanders of this campaign. I mean, Sanders and feeling the burn. I mean, he was popular uh, in the 2016 campaign, mainly because he was the only alternative to Hillary Clinton, who was extremely unpopular. And so given that matchup and there was only two choices, it made it very easy for Sanders uh, to gain a lot of support. But he's having a much harder time galvanizing 
that support this time because people have a lot of alternatives. You know, if you want a democratic socialist, there's a bunch of them to choose from. And so maybe an older cranky Jew isn't as appealing uh, given the other choices that are out there. And I think that uh, Sanders is going to be fading away. But a guy like Andy Yang, a younger guy and clearly a smart guy. You know, I had not watched his appearance on the Joe Rogan experience until just yesterday. I decided to, to watch it. And that's also kind of the motivation for uh, doing this a podcast. Once I heard him talk about his ideas, and then I spent a lot of time on his website looking at some of the things that he didn't actually discuss during the two hours with Joe Rogan. But, you know, one thing is certainly clear to me. He's a smart guy. He's a very intelligent man. Clearly, if you you know, gave an IQ test to all of the Democratic candidates, um, Yang would win. He clearly is smarter than anybody else in the race. But that being said, even though he's a very smart guy, the things that he is believing in or the things that he's espousing, this is some really dumb stuff. I mean, pretty much everything that he's advocating is really, really dumb. So you've got somebody very smart advocating a lot of dumb stuff. And the problem is, if a guy is smart as Yang can believe all this dumb stuff, then imagine the average voter who's nowhere near, right, as smart as Yang. And this guy, you know, he's he comes from very intelligent parents. Uh, his parents uh, met at UC Berkeley, right, my alma mater. He is Chinese. I mean, his parents are all from Taiwan, but ethnically they're they're Chinese. And I think that gives him a little bit of an appeal, right? He's a minority, you know, especially relative to Trump, who's, you know, so anti-China. It would be interesting if his opponent in the presidential race was, in fact, Chinese. Right? And I don't know if he's going to win the whole thing. I mean, I think he'll be around because I think he's getting a lot of support. I mean, they call him the Yang Gang, right? And he's very popular online. He's popular with young people. He's kind of pushing all the right buttons, and he's becoming kind of a cultish figure. And I think because of that, he's going to have staying power. I think a lot of other candidates may be dropping out, but he's probably still going to have a path to stay in this race, and we'll see what happens. I mean, even if he doesn't win the nomination, he could end up being... Uh, the pick for vice president. And so I want to take a little time now to really debunk the stuff that he's been saying, because he's not going to be challenged by these nimwits in the Democratic Party. I mean, nobody in the debates is going to challenge any of the nonsense that Yang is spewing. I mean, first of all, a lot of these guys believe that nonsense anyway. So he, he he's just going to have a free pass until maybe the, the election, if he actually gets the nomination, and then he has to do a debate with President Trump Maybe Trump will, you know, will, will challenge him on this stuff. In fact, he'll have to. And who knows, maybe uh, some of Trump's people will listen to this podcast and, you know, get some ideas, some bullet points on exactly where he's vulnerable and how to attack him. So that would be a good, uh, valuable use of my time as well. But personally, I would love to debate Andrew Yang. I mean, I think it'd be a great debate, first of all. I mean, I think he could certainly articulate his nonsense in a very intelligent way. And I think I could basically, you know, blow it all away. I mean, when he was on with Joe Rogan, I mean, Joe Rogan basically ate it all up. Joe didn't really challenge what he was saying. In fact, by the end of the uh, the podcast, he was pretty much endorsing his candidacy. Uh, and so I would love to debate the guy. In fact, I'd debate him on Joe Rogan. I mean, that'd be a great forum. Joe could be the moderator and I could debate Andrew Yang. Now, this is an official challenge by me. Now, obviously, I don't think Yang would accept the challenge. I don't really know what 
you know, what's in it for him to debate me. I mean, he's running for president. I mean, he doesn't need to waste his time debating me. I mean, it's great exposure for me. I'd love to be able to debate the guy. But in theory, if he really believes in this nonsense, he should welcome the opportunity to basically be challenged by somebody who could be a worthy adversary of his agenda, right? Just let him defend it from somebody who really is going to criticize it. And, you know, of course, if he's so confident that he's right, you know, I've got a decent following. You know, if he can convince my following to vote for him, right? I mean, a lot of people will hear the debate, and if he really believes that that he's right and that he can basically beat me in his debate, then he may be able to pick up a few hundred thousand voters, uh, which, you know, you know, could certainly help. So I, there, there could be something in it for him. I mean, clearly, if he waits until the campaign is over and he's no longer a candidate, I'd still be willing uh, to debate him on these issues. But it would certainly be a more interesting debate if we had it while he was still running. I don't really know how to entice him. I mean, I could you know, make a donation. I can give a maximum donation to his campaign. I mean, maybe somebody could launch a GoFundMe site or something. We could all put in a bunch of money and say, hey, why don't you debate Peter Schiff? And just for agreeing to debate, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give some money to your campaign. Although I'm not really sure I actually want to aid him in his campaign. I mean, that wouldn't really be good for the country uh, because I think the Yang presidency would be a disaster. But maybe just having uh, the debate between me and Yang may be worth it to shine enough light on all this nonsense that he's selling. Because basically, it's all a bunch of socialism wrapped up as if he's a free market guy. I mean, he's talking more about capitalism, right? And he's not saying, hey, I reject it. But if you actually look at what he's advocating, not just what he talked about on Joe Rogan, but if you look at what's on his website, it's just a blueprint for socialism. That's basically what it is. If you strip away all the bows and the ribbons, it's just more socialism. It's all about free stuff, not about freedom. Right. But anyway, let me get into the meat of Andy Yang and, and, and what he's out there saying. And, and you know, the other thing I, you know, I think that the voters will like about him is he comes across as a very sincere guy. I mean, that's one of the things that I think people liked about Bernie Sanders, was that he seemed sincere, at least at the time. And I think Yang comes across as a nice guy who's not a career politician, who cares about the country, and he has a message that, you know, if you don't really understand economics, if you're not very literate, which is pretty much just about every voter, certainly the Democratic Party, I can see why his message would be popular. And so I want to just early on just shoot as many holes in this as I can. And so once you've listened to this podcast, my goal is that you share it, right? I mean, obviously, people that are, you know, routine listeners of my podcast, I mean, they're going to they're gonna pretty much know this stuff. They're going to see through a lot of this nonsense, especially if you've been listening to me for years. Uh, you know, you could probably do this podcast yourself by now. The key is to share this podcast online to get more people who may be susceptible to buy this snake oil to get them to understand, uh, you know, why it's a bunch of nonsense. So first of all, his main premise, right, and, and what's motivating his policies is the idea that technological advancement, that automation, that robots and computers are just going to wipe out a lot of jobs. Right. I mean, one job in particular is truck drivers. Right. And he talked a lot about that on Joe Rogan, that because we're going to have this automation and he's not against that. He's he's not saying that we shouldn't have 
technological advances. I mean, he acknowledges that progress is a good thing. He just says that there is some collateral damage in the progress. There are a lot of people who are going to lose their jobs, and therefore we need to do something about it. We need to take care of these people who are the casualties, the collateral damage in progress. Yes, some people are going to benefit, but at the expense of other people. Now, what Yang is saying is not new. Right, This nonsense has been around for probably as long as we've had labor-saving devices. I mean, by definition, a labor-saving device means that you eliminate some labor, which means you eliminate the job of somebody. And so politicians have always been able to curry favor with the people who lose their job. right? Because clearly, when somebody loses a job, that individual at the time of the job loss is a loser. Right. I mean, that's what happens in when you have freedom and you have progress. Right. The classic example, somebody invented the automobile and that put out of business the buggy, the buggy uh, whip manufacturers. Right. OK, well, you know, it, that's that's life. Life isn't fair. So you got to figure out something else to do. But clearly we're better off today because we're not all riding around on horses, right? Because we have automobiles, uh, transportation is far more affordable. Uh, we have a much higher standard of living because somebody put the buggy whip uh, guys out of work. So this, this nonsense in trying to galvanize the political support of people who do have some setbacks on the road of progress, right? This is, this is as old as progress itself, right? I mean, you go back to the Industrial Revolution. And in fact, Yang even talks about that. He talks about what was going on uh, during the Industrial Revolution, uh, how people were protesting job losses and protesting automation. Yes, they were. And they were all wrong. All of the people who were fearful about how you know machines were going to take all of our jobs and destroy prosperity, they were all wrong. I mean, you'd think a smart guy like Andrew Yang would have learned from history, right? Not repeat the same mistakes of history. I mean, you know, look, look, at, look, go back to before the Industrial Revolution. Almost every American was a farmer, right? That was the number one occupation in America, farmer, right? How many people are farming today? I mean, not even 1%, I don't think, of the population is a farmer. So what, what happened to all the farm jobs? They got destroyed by uh, automation, by machines, right? Put all these farmers out of work. We don't need all these people working farms anymore. We have all this modern agriculture equipment that is making the production of food far less expensive. So because we can produce food very cheaply now, we benefit from that. Right? All the people who used to work on farms now do something else, but everybody benefits from the fact that food is now far more abundant and far less expensive. And because we don't have to spend so much time growing food, right, we can spend more of our time, more of our labor doing things. See, one of the things that Andy Yang doesn't seem to understand is that labor is a resource. It is a scarce resource, like all resources. And if we free up labor, Right, if people aren't required to do certain tasks, well, then that labor is freed up to do something else. And even when Yang is talking about the truck drivers, he admits that truck driving is a very uh, tedious job that is hard to do. Um, it's emotionally uh, draining and physically, and it strains your family relationships. Truckers are on the road for weeks at a time. They're away from their kids. They're away from their wives. Uh, there are a lot of you know, traffic accidents that involve truckers. And he admits that if we automate trucking, 
that that is a net positive, right? Because now we can have a machine that's more efficient, that trucks can move 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'll have fewer accidents. So he admits it's a good thing, but he's worried about the truckers and what's going to happen to the truckers. Well, obviously, if we liberate human beings from the toil of having to drive trucks, well, then now they have an opportunity to do something else. Now, the problem is Yang thinks, well, what are they going to do, right? Like they're never going to be able to have another job, like they're permanently unemployed. And, and basically what Yang is saying is all these unemployed truckers or other occupations, maybe in food service, or even he thinks, you know, he talks about a lot of, uh, you know, white collar type jobs, uh, you know, in accounting or legal jobs, you know, getting automated with artificial intelligence and that somehow all these people are just going to take to the streets, right? They're going to grab the pitchforks and they're going to riot, they're going to loot. And so in order to prevent this from happening, we basically have to bribe these people. We have to pay them off uh, with what he calls this this freedom dividend, which is a bunch of nonsense, which I'm going to get to after I finish debunking this idea uh, that progress and labor-saving devices is a bad thing. Again, this has been going on since the Industrial Revolution. In fact, probably before the Industrial Revolution. I mean, ever since somebody invented the wheel, right? Or even before the wheel, right? How many people did the wheel put out of work? I mean, first of all, you know, a lot of people take for granted the wheel. I mean, you might think that the wheel's been around forever, right? I mean, because, hey, it's pretty simple, right? You know, it's a wheel that rolls, right? I mean, the cavemen, though, they didn't have wheels, right? We The, the wheel didn't even get invented until about, I don't know, 3,000, 3,500, 4,000, I forget exactly, BC, right? Human homo sapiens have been around for two, 300,000 years, something like that. Yet it took hundreds of thousands of years to come up with a wheel. I mean, you might have thought that, you know, when people are pushing stuff around and dragging stuff around, that somebody would have thought about a wheel to make, to make it easier to move heavy stuff around. But, you know, the key is, I mean, if you think about it, the key to the wheel is the axle, right? Because without the axle, I mean, the wheel is pretty much useless. And I think that was, you know, the, the, the brainchild. Somebody came up with it because when you, you cut a hole in the wheel and you put a pole in there and now the wheels can spin on something and now you can you can attach something to the axle. Now you can move stuff around, right? You have a cart, right? You, and now, you know, you can move heavy things much easier. But of course, the minute somebody did that, the minute someone put a wheel on an axle and, and created the first wagon, that put people out of work. What all the people that were pushing and dragging, now one guy could do the whole thing, right? So was that a bad thing because people lost their job pushing stuff around? No, because now they were freed up to do more stuff. I mean, go and read my book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. That's the whole idea, right? These guys are fishing by hand every day. All they do, Abel, Bakel, and Charlie, all they do all day is fish because all they can do is catch one fish a day using their hands. And then all of a sudden, Abel invents a net, right, and puts them all out of the fishing business. Because once he's got a net, well, now he can start catching a bunch of fish. Well, that was the that was the beginning of progress on the island. Now that you have a tool that makes labor more efficient, they didn't have to spend all day fishing. They got to spend their days building huts and surfboards and a whole community. But it all because they found a way to put fishermen out of business. That was basically what the net did, right? You didn't need three fishermen anymore. You can have one guy fishing and then everybody else could, could do other things. You know, there's another classic example of this with Milton Friedman. And, and by the way, he invokes Milton Friedman, too, when he uh, when he talks about universal basic income, which I'm going to get to. But another thing that, that Milton Friedman used to say, he had an example. I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, or maybe there's other variants of the story. 
But Friedman talks about visiting a, I guess it was an Asian government, and they were they, they had government workers, or the government had a project, and they were building uh, a canal. And he looks down, and all these people are digging the canal with shovels. And he notices that there's no, you know, modern earth-moving equipment there. And he asks the government bureaucrat, hey, you know, where, where's all the machines? Why are these guys digging with shovels? And the politician says, well, this is a jobs program, right? We, you know, we want jobs. We don't want to use machines because if we use the machines, we won't need as many people. And then Friedman kind of responded, oh, I mean, I thought you just wanted to build a canal. I mean, if you just want to create jobs, why, you know, why'd you give them shovels? Why don't you just give them spoons, right? Because obviously you need more people to dig if they're digging with spoons than if they're digging with shovels. So shovels create unemployment. You don't need as many people digging if you give people shovels. And then if you give them earth-moving equipment, well, then you don't need as many people with shovels. It doesn't change. Robots are like shovels, right? Computers are like shovels. It's the exact same economic principle. They are not making our lives worse. They're making our lives better. I mean, here's a key aspect that Yang overlooks uh, in his whole analogy, right? When a business is able to employ a labor-saving device. Let's say it's automating trucks so that robots, computers, are driving trucks, and now the cost of transporting material around the country comes down, which is the only reason that you're substituting capital for labor is to bring down costs. That's, that's why it's happening. And so if a business is able to drive down its costs, several things are going to happen all of which will lead to greater employment, right, in other areas, right? So as truck drivers are losing their jobs because um, trucking is now becoming more efficient, right, because the human is no longer required to be in, in that truck, now the cost of shipments go down. So what are two things are going to happen, or a combination of both? The business that is utilizing less expensive transportation, their costs are coming down which means all else being equal, their profits are going up, right? So if business is generating more profits, right, because of lower costs, what is the business owner, what is the entrepreneur going to do with those profits? Well, he has two choices. He can take the profits and invest them in his business to grow his business, to make his business bigger, right, to invest in other capital equipment to expand, which means Jobs are going to be created based on the extra investments that the entrepreneur can make in his business. So, yes, the trucker loses his job, but other jobs will be created as the savings from lower transportation costs are invested more productively someplace else. Now, of course, maybe the business owner just pockets the extra profit. He doesn't invest in growing his business. He just keeps the extra profit for himself. Well, what is he going to do with that money? Maybe he'll invest it in somebody else's business, right? And now that other entrepreneur will use that money to employ more people, or maybe he'll just spend it. He'll buy more stuff. But now whoever's selling that stuff is going to get extra revenue. They have another customer. So maybe they, they need to expand because more businesses have more profits that are being distributed to their owners, which are being spent in the economy. So you're creating employment in other places, right? Now, the other thing that could happen is that prices come down to the consumer, which will, of course, happen because as more entrepreneurs 
are lowering their costs, well, now they have competitive pressures in the market to lower their prices to the consumer. So if trucking costs come down, right, the cost of transporting goods goes down, then the cost to consumers of buying those goods is going to come down, right? So now what happens? Now, if things cost less money, well, people can afford to buy more stuff. So that's going to create employment in the industries that provide or produce the other goods or services that are now being purchased that were not being purchased before because consumers were spending more money on other things. Let's say food, right? A lot of food is transported by truck. And so if the shipping costs go down, then food costs go down. Well, if I'm spending less money on food, I have more money to spend on other things. And so employment providing those other things, whether it's goods or services, is going to go up. So there is nothing to fear. Yes, some people will lose jobs and they're going to get other jobs. The problem is, and, and this is something that Yang doesn't identify, the real problem is government. See, government is what's creating the, the friction in the job market. What's making it harder for the people who lose their jobs in one field to get other jobs is government. You have minimum wage laws, number one, that makes it hard for people to get a new job or learn new skills. You have occupational licensing laws that restrict access to occupations. You have government-sponsored labor unions that require membership or other things before you're allowed into a a particular field. You have all sorts of onerous labor laws that drive up the cost of employment. In fact, a lot of the people who are being driven out of work now, I mean, he talks about uh, the people in the service sector who are being driven out of work, and he's saying it's all because of robots and machines. No, it's not. Robots and machines are the way employers are trying to cope with the new labor laws or the higher minimum wage laws or how easy it is for uh, employees to sue their employers. That is what is driving a lot of the automation and the, you know, the, the robotization. It's to get away from all these government requirements. So what he should really be talking about is getting rid of these government mandates and taxes and regulations that are causing businesses to prematurely try to automate jobs that would be better performed by humans if the government stayed out. But that is not a problem of automation. That is a problem of government. So what we need is less government. But the problem with Yang is if you look at his website, all he wants is more government. I mean, I've never seen a guy, although I haven't really studied necessarily all the other candidates, but all this guy wants is more government everywhere. I mean, it's a huge increase in government that he is advocating for. And the signature piece of his big government campaign is universal basic income at least his own version of it, uh, and he has labeled it a freedom dividend. And it's got nothing to do with freedom, and it's not a dividend. I mean, first of all, he talks about how America is the richest country in the world, and we all deserve a dividend just because we're citizens. You know what? We're not really the richest country. We're the most heavily indebted country in the world. You know, go to the uh, usdebtclock.org and look at the national debt, which is over $22.5 trillion. But then they break it down uh, per capita and then per taxpayer. So per capita, which includes little babies, right? Each American is in debt. And this is just a federal debt. This isn't a state debt, a municipal debt. This is just a federal debt. Every American is in hock to the tune of $68,349. 
But if you don't count the people who don't pay taxes, you don't count the little babies, right? Or if you just count the taxpayers, the average taxpayer is in hock $183,000. I mean, so, I mean, if you take a family, right, you got a husband and wife, double that number. So Americans aren't entitled to a dividend. We know we, 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 owe, we have huge bills. We owe the world. We owe everybody. Americans are in debt. There is no big pot of money to divvy up. There's just a big pile of liabilities that we're all on the hook for. That is the reality. But Yang wants to pretend that, oh, we're all so rich. This country has this big pot of money, and it can easily just share the bounty with everybody in the form of a dividend. We can't. Right? That, the, the whole idea that we have all this money is complete nonsense. We have a pile of liabilities that we have to deal with. We don't have this big pot of money uh, that everybody can get their share of. But his whole idea, though, is that this freedom dividend is universal basic income. And it's not. I mean, it has some uh, things in common with universal basic income, but there are a lot of differences. You know, I'm still not really sure where I fall on this whole universal basic income argument. I mean, I can see the pros and cons, and there are a lot of pros that I agree with. It's just that the the perverted version of it that Yang is uh, advocating really doesn't have many pros. It just has a bunch of cons. But, you know, he talks about the fact that Milton Friedman was in favor of universal basic income, but he would not be in favor of Yang's version. I mean, the real universal basic income basically eliminates all other government welfare, right? So you don't get welfare or food stamps or housing benefits, uh, unemployment insurance, even the minimum wage. Right? Getting minimum the minimum wage is a key part of the benefit of UBI, right? Because after all, if you're giving everybody, and in Yang's case, he's advocating for $1,000 a month per person. But if you're giving everybody $1,000 a month, they're making $12,000 a year. Why do you need a minimum wage? Just let them get any wage they can, right? That way you won't put the onus of subsidizing the low-skilled or no-skilled worker on the people who employ them. It's the taxpayer in general who is bridging the gap. So at least if we get rid of the minimum wage, then a lot of people can get jobs and learn more skills so they can earn more money. But the problem with Yang's version is he doesn't get rid of any of the welfare programs. He doesn't get rid of Medicare, Medicaid. You know, he makes it all bigger. In fact, he's advocating, you know, Medicare for all. He wants to make all the welfare programs we have now even bigger. He wants the government sending even more money to people on top of the freedom dividend. So the way uh, Yang is presenting the freedom dividend, taxpayers get a choice, right? They get to pick the higher of all the other government welfare benefits or the $1,000 a month. So if they're getting $1,200 or $1,500 a month in food stamps and housing vouchers and other types of government aid, well, then they don't get the $1,000. And maybe if they're getting $500 in that, well, then they just get an extra $500, right? But so in other words, you don't eliminate welfare. And that is one of the big advantages of universal basic income that we're thrown out the window. You know, and part of the reason to eliminate welfare is to eliminate all the administrative costs associated uh, with the welfare programs. 
right? Figuring it out, who qualifies, right? And then ferreting out the fraud because there's all sorts of fraud when it comes to welfare. So if everybody just gets $1,000, you know, you don't need any administrative agencies. It's real simple. You don't have to worry about fraud because everybody gets the money. So it's a much simpler program to administer and it's a lot less expensive. And again, the, the most important part, the most compelling argument of universal basic income is that the way the means-based systems work, you are punished if you actually get a job, right? If if Because you lose your benefits. So not only do you face taxes, because you pay taxes on the money you earn, but you lose the money you're getting for free. So in other words, the highest marginal tax rate in the country is really not for the rich. It's for the very poor who leave welfare and get their first job. Because their tax rate is not just the taxes they pay, but all the benefits they lose. And so that creates a powerful incentive for people not to work. I mean, here, I'm in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has one of the lowest labor force participation rates in the world. Only 40% of the people who could be working in Puerto Rico are actually working. Why is that? Because the tax rate on getting a job is so high, most people don't want it. It's not because they're lazy. It's just because they're not stupid. If the government creates a perverse incentive not to work, then people won't work. And so that's what happens. People make the smart decision. And, I, you know, I might make the same decision if I was in their shoes. You know, I mean, leisure is much more fun than having a job. And if the government is going to take away most of what I earn from working, then what's the point? I might as well not work. Now, of course, there are a lot of people in Puerto Rico who are working illegally under the table. So the real labor force participation rate may be higher than the official rate. But that is also another part of the problem because you drive people into the other underground economy. So the minute you have this universal basic income and say, hey, you're going to get a thousand bucks. And if you get a job, you're not going to lose any of your benefits. Well, that's a, you know, that's no longer a disincentive not to get a job because after all, I mean, you can't really live on a thousand dollars a month. I mean, some people could, I mean, cause it starts when you're 18 and an 18 year old, you know, could live. Okay. Especially if he's still living with his parents, that's a lot of money. And in fact, one of the idiotic things that uh, Yang wants to do is he wants to lower the voting age down to 16. Now his, you know, freedom dividend starts at 18, but I assume it's 18 because that's the voting age, right? I mean, it's not starting at 21, the drinking age. You get the dividend the minute you turn 18. I mean, a lot of kids are still in high school when they're 18. That's a lot of spending money, right? When you're still living in parent, in, you know, living with your parents, going to high school, all of a sudden you're getting a thousand bucks a month. That's a big allowance. But if you're going to lower the voting age down to 16, I'm sure that they're going to lower the UBI age, the freedom dividend down to 16. Uh, and clearly, that's a lot of money for high school kids to spend. But obviously, if you're older, your 30s or 40s, I mean, if you're trying to you know, live a normal life and raise a family, I mean, you can't do it on $1,000 a month. So the idea is, well, now you've got to go out and get a job. And we've taken away a big disincentive from getting that job. But of course, one of the many problems is once they, you know, they start this thing on $1,000 uh, a month. I mean, then there's a bidding war between politicians to raise it. Oh, you can't live on a thousand dollars a month. We need to make it fifteen hundred dollars a month. We need to make it two thousand dollars a month, right? So you keep on increasing uh, the amount, and that obviously would start to happen, and then undermine the whole premise of not having it high enough uh, to actually discourage people from working where they can simply live 
off of that that money. But a lot of people could. In fact, some people might take the thousand dollars a month and leave the U.S. and just go live in a country where the cost of living is much lower, where you can, in fact, live a pretty good life on a thousand U.S. dollars a month. At least now, before we have a a dollar crisis, would ultimately happen anyway. In fact, if we would implement uh, the Yang platform, we would just hasten the demise of the dollar and therefore destroy the very value of the supposed freedom dividend. But Yang's, you know, idea to basically run two welfare systems simultaneously. It's kind of like the alternative minimum tax, right? Where you you calculate your taxes one way and then you got to calculate it another way and you have to pay, you know, whichever is higher or wherever it works out. What he's basically saying is we're going to keep all the welfare programs we have now and then we're going to have this universal basic income freedom dividend and taxpayers get to choose which welfare system they want to participate in, whichever one is more lucrative. So you, you still maintain all the bureaucracy of the old system, and now you pile on the cost of the new system. This is complete insanity. Now, the question is, why would Yang you know, be you know, marketing this bastardized version of UBI? Because I think he's afraid that if he actually advocates for legitimate universal basic income and ending right, all these other welfare programs, uh, and, you know, getting rid of the minimum wage that he's going to lose votes. So he's trying to be all things to all people. He's trying to offer everybody in the Democratic tent something for nothing. He doesn't want to take anything away that somebody's already getting. He just wants to add more goodies in, which is why he's going to be so popular, because he's promising all of this free stuff, you know, dressed up as freedom and capitalism. And, you know, some people think, oh, maybe he's a free market guy. He's a libertarian. There's nothing free market or libertarian about this guy. It is just pure socialism. Now, some things the guy says, I mean, make sense. I mean, he's not completely nuts. I mean, if you listen to him talk about education, he talked about that on the Joe Rogan experience about, you know, uh, that education is, you know, basically, uh, not what it's cracked up to be, that not everybody should be going to college, that not everybody benefits from college. He talked about, you know, the bloated uh, costs now. In fact, in particular, he called out the colleges and universities. He said, look, you know, the 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 prices are going way up. And he said that if you look at the bloated excesses in the admin costs, that you have all these people administering these colleges and the cost has gone way up, but the value of the output, the educational product that they're selling is not any more valuable, yet the cost of providing that education has skyrocketed. And according to uh, Yang, he said that's really weird. And, and, and you know, he doesn't know why it is. It's just weird. And that, you know, he does want the government to force colleges to cut their admin costs in order to keep qualifying to have students get government aid for education to go to their colleges. Now, first of all, I mean, one of the things that should be eliminated if we're going to have universal basic income is government money for college. I mean, hey, you're 18, you're getting $1,000 a month, use that money towards college, right? You shouldn't get that $1,000 a month and then get more government money for college. But of course, what Yang doesn't get is that it's not weird that college admin expenses have skyrocketed. It makes perfect sense if you understand the government forces that have caused it. The reason that colleges keep raising tuition and the reason their costs are bloated is because of government policy. Government is funneling all this money to students, which they use to bid up the cost of colleges. And so colleges keep raising their, co their prices to absorb all that money. It's a perverse market 
that is completely you know, exempt from the normal forces of supply and demand. See, if the students weren't able to tap into all this government money, guaranteed loans or government-provided uh, loans, well, then the colleges would be under competitive pressures to reduce costs so that they would have customers. So instead of becoming less efficient and hiring more and more people, they would use the technology that Yang is so afraid of. They would automate. They would reduce their headcount. They would make colleges leaner and meaner so that they could lower their prices so that people wouldn't have to borrow all this money to go to college, so that college would be much less expensive. That is the real solution, right? That is what, you know, the elephant in the room that Yang can't see. It's government. It's government programs that are driving up the cost of college. And it's the technology and innovation that he's afraid of. That's the solution. It's more freedom, more capitalism and less government. Yet he wants more government and and less capitalism. I mean, of course, you know, when he was on Joe Rogan and he talked about the financial crisis, he said it was Wall Street that crashed the economy. Again, he doesn't understand that it wasn't Wall Street. It was Wall Street reacting to government. It was the Federal Reserve with artificially low interest rates. It was the government subsidizing and guaranteeing mortgages with Freddie and Fannie. It was Freddie and Fannie buying up all the subprime mortgages. That's what crashed the economy, not Wall Street. But he still doesn't get that. Or at least if he gets it, he's not going to admit it because that's not how you get votes. But let's look at all of the other crazy things, uh, big government programs that Yang is advocating in addition, in addition to the freedom dividend. But before I even get to the other crazy stuff, I wanted to talk about his economic argument for the freedom dividend, right? Because what he is saying is that it's actually going to help the economy, which is one of the reasons that it's not going to cost as much as people think. Because the economy is going to be so much better because we're pumping all this money into the economy, right? Like he says that when you give people $1,000 a month, they go out and spend it, right? And all that helps the economy because they go out and buy stuff and that helps businesses and they hire more people. So this is going to be an economic boom, which, of course, is all nonsense. You're not pumping anything into anything, right? The government doesn't have an extra $1,000 to pump anywhere. Right. The, the money has to be pumped out of another part of the economy to pump in someplace else. Right. Again, it's like giving yourself a blood transfusion from your right arm to your left arm. You don't have any more blood. In fact, you spill a lot of the blood on the floor. That's what happens when you have these government transfer programs, when they take money out of one person's pocket and give it to somebody else. They put a lot of money in their own pocket. It's very inefficient. So you're not pumping anything in. You're actually pumping stuff out. You are diverting the economy. And, you know, of course, the Keynesian argument is, well, the people who are getting the money spend it. Right. And the people who are paying the taxes, well, they might not have spent it. Well, no, but something would have happened with that money. I mean, because if you don't spend it, then you're going to invest it. Right. Because even if you save it, then somebody else is going to invest it. And so do you really grow the economy by diverting money away from investment to consumption? Absolutely not. You undermine the economy. You hurt the economy because what grows the economy is production, is is invention in, 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 in making workers more productive so that they can produce more stuff so that the prices can go down and the standard of living can go up. But if you simply re-divert money out of savings and investment to current consumption, you undermine economic growth. You undermine future standard of living. And of course, you know, if giving people $1,000 a month is good, well, giving them $2,000 a month is better, right? I mean, if simply spending money, if creating money out of thin air and giving it to people to spend is going to grow the economy, well, then, you know, 
keep keep on doing it. But of course, it doesn't work. That is the nonsense argument. I hear it all the time. Oh, unemployment is good because people take their benefits and spend it. Food stamps are good because people just spend the money right away, right? We want to make sure that the money goes to the people who are going to spend it, right? Not not to these rich people who are going to invest it, right? That's that that is the socialist way of thinking that the cart drives the horse instead of the other way around. You can't spend yourself wealthy. Again, that's another topic that I really go into in my book, How an Economy Grows and and Why It Crashes. And of course, he does want to fund this, not just by printing money, and a lot of it is going to be by printing money, but he wants to fund it through higher taxes. That's the other part I want to talk about before I get into the, the other nonsense. He does say that we need higher taxes, right? He's not saying that it's all going to be created out of nothing. We're going to have to have higher taxes in order to finance uh, the uh, universal basic income payment, except the taxes aren't even going to come close, right? There, there is no way that these taxes are going to raise enough money uh, to cover the cost of the universal basic income, not to mention all of the other big government programs that he is advocating on top of the UBI, not instead of the UBI. Remember, the UBI isn't replacing the government programs we have now. He actually wants to build on those government programs. But I'm going to get to that. First, let me you know go over though the costs. So one of the things he wants to do is impose a 10% value-added tax, national sales tax, basically. He does want to exempt, uh, you know, certain items, you know, food and other items that, you know, poor or middle-class people would buy, right? But, you know, other things would be taxed. So there's going to be this 10% tax, which he admits is only going to provide the government with a small fraction of the cost of providing the freedom dividends. Now, the other taxes he wants, he wants to eliminate the cap on uh, Social Security so that 100% of one's income would be subject to Social Security taxes, which effectively would raise the marginal tax rate uh, from 39.9% where it stands right now, which is the federal top tax bracket, which is the 37% that we have now, which used to be a little higher, but it was reduced by the last tax cut. But then you have to add the 2.9% Medicare tax. So that gives you a top federal tax rate of 39.9%. And Yang wants to raise that all the way up to 52.3%, which is a pretty significant increase. And then when you factor in the state income tax, which is no longer deductible from the federal income tax, you're going to be looking at a marginal tax rate for higher income earners. And that starts at, you know, whatever, you know, 150,000, 200,000, I forget, 250 for for families, or I forget where the brackets are, but you, you don't have to make that much money before you hit the top bracket, right? You don't have to be a billionaire, right? You know, uh, but you're talking about marginal tax rates of better than 60% for a lot of people uh, in a lot of states that have state income tax. But the big tax hike is for capital gains because he wants to eliminate the distinction or the difference between capital gains and ordinary income. uh, And he wants to tax everything at the same rate, which includes, of course, getting rid of the carried interest exemption. But of course, once you uh, get rid of the differential between capital gains in order your income, then it, it's a moot point. You don't, I mean, the only reason that the carry interest uh, is a benefit is because you get 
to basically reclassify what should be ordinary income and get to call it capital gains. But if there's no difference between the rates, then there's no benefit from the reclassification. So kind of, you know, he's advocating two policies that really, you know, are mutually exclusive because once you get rid of the differential, then it doesn't matter about the carried interest. But if the capital gains rate were to go from 23.9%, which is where it is now, which is 20% plus the uh, Obamacare tax on, on dividends. So if you go from 23.9 to 52.3, that's a more than a doubling of the capital gains tax, which is a huge increase on the returns from stocks, right, On uh, from dividends. I, I'm sure he's going to do the same thing with dividends. I, I know he's talking about capital gains. He's probably talking about dividends as well. So if you're going to raise the tax on corporations, on dividend income and capital gains to that high level, you will dramatically reduce the value of, of U.S. Uh, companies because all they're worth supposedly is the present value of their future tax flow, cash flows, and those cash flows will be greatly diminished uh, by these higher taxes. But that's not where it ends. He has another tax that he wants. He wants a financial transaction tax. He wants a tax of one-tenth of one percent on every financial transaction. Now, that may not seem like a lot of money, but it actually is. I mean, if you if you trade a million dollars worth of stock, you have to pay a thousand dollar tax on the buy, and then you have to pay another thousand dollar tax on the sell. So the transaction cost to buy and sell a thousand a million dollars worth of stock is two thousand dollars. Now you know you have a lot of guys who are day trading stocks. Let's say a guy is day trading you know, a million dollars worth of stock. Maybe he only has a hundred thousand in his account. He's utilizing leverage. He's day trading and he's allowed to maybe have 10 to one, uh, intraday trading. And the guy may be, you know, doing 50 trades a day. Who knows, right? You buy a million dollars worth of stock five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you sell it. And, you know, maybe you make 500 bucks. Maybe you make a thousand dollars. You do that 10, 20 times a day. That's a lot of money. The problem is if you have to pay a $2,000 tax, every time you buy and sell a million dollars worth of stock, a lot of those profitable transactions become big losers. So what's going to happen if we actually had a financial transaction tax is the number of financial transactions would, would decline dramatically. And therefore, the government would not raise anywhere near the revenue they think they're going to raise because they look at all these transactions and say, aha, let's just tax them. But they assume that the number of transactions is ineffected by the tax rate. I mean, most of the transactions are going to go away. A lot of this day trading is going to disappear. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that there'll be less liquidity in the markets, right? Because the day traders are providing liquidity. And so if there's less liquidity, in addition to investors having to pay this transaction tax, which will somewhat reduce the long-term returns on their investments, but with less liquidity, the spreads will be wider. So when you buy a stock, you'll pay a little bit more to buy it. When you sell a stock, you'll get a little bit less for selling it because there won't be as many people in there trading. Right. So it is going to reduce overall the returns that investors get on their investments. But maybe even more important than that, it will make America a less competitive jurisdiction with which to trade. Because if, you know, financial transactions are being taxed in America, but you can make similar transactions on foreign exchanges and not be subject to the taxes, well, then the volume is going to shift over there. You know, and the, 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 the trading, you know, the revenues. So it's not going to raise the amount of money that they need. And, of course, what's going to happen? The minute the government puts in a tax and it doesn't raise enough revenue, they just raise the tax. So it may start out at 0.1, 
Uh, but it's going to go to 0 0.2, 0 0.3. They're going to keep increasing the rate. Again, it's like the, the, the camel's nose under the tent. But then the higher they make the tax, the less revenue the tax generates, and now they have to keep jacking up the tax. So that's not going to work. Then he's also got a carbon tax that he wants to introduce that's also going to make the U.S. economy less efficient, less productive. But all this amounts to you know, just government transfer payments, at taking money out of one pocket, putting it into the other pocket. None of this is going to help the economy. The economy is going to continue to weaken. All Yang is doing with this, you know, his own trumped up version of universal basic income is basically bribing the voters with a thousand dollar a month paycheck. And of course, you know, obviously someone else can see that thousand and raise it up to twelve hundred a month or fifteen hundred a month. I'm sure, you know, somebody eventually will do that. But in the meantime, a lot of people, I think, are getting suckered into uh, believing that this is some kind of a panacea. But I want to get back to to all the other government programs that Yang is actually advocating that he wants in addition to the, the freedom dividend. If you read through his website and look at all the things he's advocating, basically, he wants the federal government to increase spending, right, to provide free preschool to everybody, right? So you can't, you know, you don't have to use your freedom dividend to pay for preschool because you're going to get that free. He wants government, federal government money to increase teacher salaries. So the extra thousand dollars a month, because remember, all the teachers are going to get an extra twelve thousand dollars a year, right? Because most teachers are not currently on welfare. So they're going to get that twelve thousand dollars a year. But that's not enough. We need to raise teacher salaries. So the government has to do that. We need government money, federal government money for vocational training. Right. The freedom dividend is not enough. The government has to spend money there. He wants the federal government to spend more money on autism intervention, all these climate change initiatives. He wants more federal money for the arts. Right. I mean, can't people take care of that with their freedom dividend? No, no, no. We don't get you know, the taxpayer doesn't get any kind of a dividend. He's got to pay the cost of the freedom dividend. Plus, he's got to pay all these extra expenses. Um, look at some of the other things that he's advocating. He wants the government to subsidize moving costs, to make it easier for people to move for a new job. I mean, talk about, you know, a bunch of fraud. I mean, any time somebody wants to move, they can pr pretty much pretend it's employment related. So, but the government's going to have to pay for people to relocate. Can't they cover those costs out of their freedom dividend? I mean, how much does it cost to move? No, no, no. We don't want you to have to spend any of your freedom dividend on moving costs, right? You're, you know, we're, the government's going to pay for that. He's got this crazy idea. He calls this democracy dollars. He wants every American citizen, every American citizen gets $100 a year, right, to give it to the political candidate of his choice. I mean, if you want to donate to a political candidate, can't you donate some of your $1,000 a month? Ain't that enough? No. He wants another government program to send a check to every single taxpayer, 100 bucks, so that they can then take that money and donate it to a politician. And then he wants another $100, a prosperity grant. He wants to give each American voter another $100 check to make a donation to the charity of his of his choice. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, it's not really charity if it, you're not giving up any of your own money. If somebody is giving you the money to donate it to charity, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it basically destroys the whole value of what of what a charitable contribution is. But he basically wants to give everybody a hundred bucks. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fraud involved in this too. A lot of phony nonprofits or companies will come up to, to take advantage of this hundred dollars 
uh, a year. And of course, again, all these numbers, once they're on the table, once you start this program, now it's 100, then it's 200, then it's 300. It's going to keep going up and up and up, right? All this stuff on top of the Freedom Dividend. Then he wants the federal government, and I'm not making this stuff up. It's all on his website, right? He wants the federal government to provide free financial counseling to all Americans. I mean, if you want a financial advisor, go out and hire one. But now the government is going to make this some kind of like a human right, like everybody gets financial advice. And first of all, if you're going to get financial advice from the government, I mean, you're going to get lousy advice. I mean, come on. But the whole idea that we got to give everybody free financial advice, you know, then, of course, you know, he wants to forgive all the student debt. I mean, that's a typical thing. Right. But, you know, no, we're not going to have the students use their thousand dollars a month to pay that debt. No, no, no. We want to forgive the debt. And we're going to give them $1,000 uh, a month. He actually writes out on his website that he wants the federal government to give single parents even more money. He talks about how, you know, single parents are struggling and it's hard and we need to have even more money uh, funneled to single parents. I mean, what is the $1,000 a month supposed to do? Isn't that supposed to cover it? So you're supposed to get $1,000 a month plus extra money for single parents or maybe you know which I, I guess you might have to subtract the thousand dollars if you got enough money for being a single parent then maybe you wouldn't also qualify for the thousand dollars but the point is to eliminate all that welfare and replace it with the universal basic income not create a bigger uh welfare program for single mothers because again what that does is incentivizes single women to become parents, if you're going to give women money for having children and you're going to give them more and more money for every child they have, well, then they're going to go out and have children to get those checks. That's what's happened. That's the lesson that we should have already learned. Yet instead of trying to get rid of that and replace it by UBI, he wants to have UBI and he wants to have that too. He also wants to increase some kind of federal program to try to force uh, more equal pay for equal work laws or he wants to, you know, uh, have the LBGTQ community wants to make sure that there's no uh, discrimination. And obviously, so you've got to increase the, the federal workforce to police all this. You got to put even more pressure on employers to make sure they're not discriminating. So you've got to artificially increase the cost of employing people even more than it already is. So, you know, all this just accelerates the, the drive to automate, uh, to, to bring in the robots, to get away from all these government uh, equal pay for equal work, uh, you know, laws and, and, and the police state that's required to enforce that and all this other stuff to make it easier for your employees to sue you, right? He wants to increase the pressure on employers to get rid of workers while he's talking about how terrible it is that people are losing their jobs he wants to accelerate the process by really you know hammering the employers even more and creating an even larger uh, incentive uh, to automate but some of his other crazy ideas uh, he wants to make election day a federal holiday right in addition to letting 16 year olds vote or requiring the states to allow 16 year olds to vote he wants to make election day a federal holiday right another paid day off you know he also wants to make april 15th the day that we file our taxes a holiday right he wants he said let's make taxes fun right so let's give everybody another paid holiday right let's make april 15th a national holiday although i don't think yang has really thought this one through because you know the post office needs to be open on the day that you file your taxes so you can go down there and file it, right? That's why whenever April 15th 
falls on a weekend or a holiday, then they extend the deadline to file your tax return because the post office needs to be open, right? Well, all the postal employees get holidays off. So if they make the April 15th, the tax filing deadline, a national holiday, the post office will be closed. So it will be impossible to file your tax return. So the tax return, the tax day, will be the day after the holiday for filing your taxes, which means now, what? will that day have to be a holiday too? Which, of course, means that we keep having to extend the holiday until nobody works at all, which is maybe uh, Yang's goal. But obviously, you know, the thing is, the whole idea is, is lunacy. Then, of course, he wants to make uh, both the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico states would be a disaster, of course, for Puerto Rico. I guess it would be fine for the District of Columbia because they already pay federal taxes. The people in Puerto Rico do not, although they do pay Social Security taxes over here. So Yang's uh, idea to eliminate the cap on Social Security taxes would definitely impact Puerto Rico in a negative way. But, of course, if we made Puerto Rico and uh, the Washington, D.C., a state. And there's a good reason that Washington, D.C. is not a state, right? I mean, they didn't. the founding fathers carved D.C. out specifically to make it not a state. Uh, but if you made it a state, right, because they could have put the capital in a state. The, the founding fathers didn't want any state to have the capital. They thought that wasn't fair. So they created the capital, and it was not part of any state. Well, now, if you make the state a capital, well, you now create the very situation that the framers wanted to avoid. So it would be a horrible uh, thing to do. But, of course, if D.C. was a state, that's two Democratic senators forever. If Puerto Rico is a state, that's another two Democratic senators forever. So you got four Democratic senators. The Republicans will never have the Senate again, most likely. And, of course, if you let 16-year-olds vote, clearly they'll never have the Senate. They'll never have the House either. Another crazy thing that he wants to do, Yang wants to create a new government department, the Department of Technology with a secretary, a cabinet-level position, right? The secretary of technology. I mean, look, we've made it to the year 2019. We lead the world in technology. What do we need a Department of Technology for? What possible benefit could that have? I mean, the, the Department of Energy didn't benefit us. I mean, the fact that we're actually now producing more energy has to do with hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling. It's not like the Department of Energy came up with this stuff. The free market came up with this stuff. Right. The, the 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 Department of Energy is a complete waste. The Department of Technology will be an even bigger waste. What we should be doing is thinking about ways to eliminate the departments we have, not add on even new departments that we don't need and that we can't afford. Of course, he's also advocating Medicare for all. Right. So in addition to your freedom dividend, right, your thousand dollars a month, you're going to get free medical care. Right. No, God forbid you should actually use some of your thousand dollars a month to buy insurance. Right. To pay for your own health care costs. Right. No, no, no. You're going to get that thousand dollars a month and we're going to cover all your medical costs. So that makes the thousand dollars a month a lot more valuable because you've got all your medical needs covered. And so you get to spend that thousand dollars on something else. But what are the wackiest things is, I think, his uh, mandatory paid leave. He actually has two uh, types of mandatory leave. One is for every uh, worker. Uh, if you have a job, he wants to mandate that your employer provides you with four weeks per year of paid leave, right? Four weeks of vacation. And even if you're not an employee, even if you're an independent contractor, if you're working as an independent contractor, for a particular company and you bill that company more than 40 hours a week, let's say you're an Uber driver 
and you know you you know Uber, you know you're working more than 40 hours a week for Uber, then for every 13 weeks that you work, Uber would have to pay you, uh, you know, a full week, maybe whatever your average uh, income was, you get to take a week off, and they just have to uh, send you a check. Now, a lot of people think that you know this is getting something for nothing. It's not because if you mandate that employers pay you for not working then what happens is they pay you less while you are working. Because simply, you end up having to spread your salary over a, a shorter number of weeks, right? So if you're going to take four weeks off, right, and so you're not going to work 50, you know, out of those 52 weeks a year, well, let's say you were getting, you were already getting two weeks vacation, and now you're going to get two weeks more, well, then the employers simply have to reduce what they're paying you for the weeks that you work so they have the extra money to pay you for the weeks that you don't. So you're not getting something for nothing. People think they're getting something for nothing, but what they're really losing is choice because workers right now can go to their employer and say, you know what? I'd rather have more time off. Why don't you cut my pay and give me more vacations? I mean, any worker can go to their boss and try to negotiate a compensation package where they're paid less, but they work less. But when the government comes in and mandates that you work less, well, then you have no choice. You're going to get paid less. And all this, of course, in addition to taking away individual freedom and liberty, makes the economy less productive, right? And it, it's a net negative. Now, when it comes to minimum wage workers, if the government mandates paid leave, paid vacations, that effectively amounts to an increase in the minimum wage. Because if you're an employer and you're paying somebody the minimum wage, and now you're required to provide uh, paid vacation days, you can't reduce their pay to accommodate the fewer days being worked because they're already at the legal uh, minimum. So the only thing you can do is reduce your headcount. You have to lay people off because obviously if you have an increase in the minimum wage, now you raise the bar. Workers have to have a higher amount of productivity in order to justify the higher price. But where it goes crazy, I mean, from the, you know, from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous, is for family leave. And I'm not even sure exactly what he means. But if you go to his website and you read about the mandatory paid family leave, that if you have a child, you get six months off paid leave. And if you're married, you get nine months off to be split between the two parents, however you want to do it. Six months, nine months paid leave? I mean, that's nine months is almost the entire year. Now, first of all, he doesn't mention how often you can get that nine months off. I mean, if you have a kid, is it the year the kid is born? Or is it every year that you're a parent? You can claim nine months of paid leave. I mean, who would want to work for nine months if you got nine months paid leave. And of course, nobody would want to hire anybody. I mean, if I knew, if I was going to hire somebody and then they could immediately take nine months off and I'd have to pay them anyway, I'd have to be an idiot to hire them. I mean, if you want to make it impossible for people to get a job, just require employers to pay everybody for nine months, even though they're not working. Because first of all, I mean, when you say that the parents can divide the work, right, or divide the leave, well, let's say I happen to hire somebody who's married right? And their spouse doesn't have a job. Well, there's only one person who could get the leave and that's the one that I'm in hiring. And so therefore that person could say, Hey, I'm going to take all the nine months for myself 
So I want nine months off. And by the way, you have to pay me, you know, just mail my checks to my house because I'm not going to even bother to show up to collect a paycheck because I'm, you know, take care of my kid. So just send the money here. I mean, this is complete nonsense, right? The whole economy would implode if you kind of empowered people. I mean, people would have to fire everybody just to get out from this obligation. Now, I think he limits it. He says that you have to have at least 50 employees or more uh, before you're subject to the requirement to provide this, which means, you know, Everybody would have to fire all their workers until they got below uh, 50 or people would, you know, otherwise you couldn't even afford to have workers. Now, I don't really know. Um, Yang needs to clarify this. He can't possibly mean that you get the leave every year. But I mean, what is it, a one-time thing? Or is it every time you have a kid, you get a new nine months off or for each kid? Because let's say it's not you know, birth, but maybe your your kid supposedly gets sick or he has some other kind of problem. I mean, do you do you get nine months once? Uh, per kid between now and when they're 18. I mean, ha- and how do you police this? I mean, this stuff is going to be ripe with fraud and it's re- going to require all sorts of government uh, bureaucrats uh, to police this. I mean, the bottom line is that Yang wants to create a gigantic welfare state. He wants the government to be paying for everything, giving out all sorts of free money, all because supposedly uh, automation and progress is going to destroy us. And because of all the horrible things that are going to be unleashed by automation, right? And he's playing into people's fears that robots are going to take away their jobs. But, hey, it's okay because the government's just going to give you money anyway. So even if you lose your job, there's nothing to worry about because you're going to get all this money from the government, and that's going to make your life better. And a lot of people, unfortunately, are going to buy into this nonsense. There is nothing new about what Yang is repackaging and selling. It is a bunch of nonsense. Politicians, socialists, demagogues, right, have been spewing this stuff. They've been promising these freebies. They've been trying to scare people into thinking that they have to fear progress, that they have to fear capitalism, and that the solution is to elect somebody who is going to make their problems go away, right? And every time this has been preached, it has always failed, right? And there's nothing different. There's nothing new about what Yang is saying. The only thing that's different is the messenger. Right. He's a new guy. He's Asian. He's you know, he's you know, he's got a nice way of speaking. He's he you know, he's he's a likable guy. He seems to be a sincere guy. And that is unfortunately what makes him all the more dangerous and all the more scary, because when people who you like. Right. You know, when they have this type of uh, belief and when they are when they have this type of message, that makes them a lot scarier. They can do a lot more damage. Then if people didn't like him and so they dismissed him, it's the fact that he is likable and that his snake oil, you know, is more saleable. And you have a a gullible population who is just likely to swallow it, especially if this economy is in a bad recession or even even if we're not in a recession, even if we've just got the same type of slow growth that we had under Obama that so frustrated voters that they turned to Trump, those same voters are going to turn to something that's even more nonsense than they did before. You know, this 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 socialism dressed up as a freedom dividend, right? And the messenger is is a likable guy, right? This makes the message all the more dangerous, which is what I said from the beginning of this podcast. It's important that you not only listen to this podcast, but that you share it. You try to circulate it, you know, on social media, get more and more of your friends to listen to it so that we can debunk once and for all what Yang is saying. And again, if you want to try to build up a, an online campaign to have Peter Schiff debate Andrew Yang, I mean, I am ready to go.
right? I mean, I will debate Yang anytime, any place, anywhere, whether it's Joe Rogan podcast or anywhere else. I'm up for the debate because I am confident that free market capitalism will win out over the Yang socialism that he's trying to con people into believing. And so if he has any confidence in what he's saying, if he actually thinks it could stand up to some real criticism, not the nonsense he's going to get from these lame brains up at the Democratic debate, right? If he really wants to put his crazy ideas to the test, then I'm the guy to test it. The idea of this freedom dividend, it's very catchy. It's great politics. It'll make a great bumper sticker. But the freedom dividend is neither a dividend nor does it indicate freedom. It's not a dividend. As I said, dividend is something that is paid uh, by a company, right? This is being paid by the taxpayer. And it can't be free because the taxpayer has to pay for it. So it doesn't create freedom. It diminishes freedom because the taxpayer is now on the hook to fund this freedom so-called dividend. So that diminishes our freedom if now we have to provide every man, woman, and child with $1,000 because it doesn't come from the government. Again, the government has no money to divvy up. The government only has what it confiscates from somebody else. So we are being obligated to give people, each taxpayer is obligated to give another taxpayer $12,000 a year. And again, it's not a gift if it's being forcibly extracted. So our freedom is being diminished because the income that we earn is being diverted and given to somebody else against our will. And this is something that needs to be opposed. We cannot allow somebody to usurp the cause of freedom and liberty and try to peddle slavery and enslaving a population and obligate them to pay this universal basic income, in addition to the enormous welfare state that Andrew Yang now wants to make even bigger, we need to expose this for what it is. And this YouTube video, this podcast, I think will go a long way in shining the light of truth on this fraud.